you graduated from the uh, University of Kansas and your specialty was uh, Slavic languages and literature. And on the university's uh, website, it said that uh, your speciality was Russian language. Why did you choose to study Russian? Well, I first studied on accident, kind of, because I was studying, for my undergraduate degree, I studied English. And in my university, when you do a liberal arts humanities degree, you have to take two years of foreign language. And I was going to do either Russian or German because they had good programs in my school, and I wanted to read either um, Kafka Dostoevsky, and I decided I'd rather read Dostoevsky than Kafka. Um, I know, even though I'm in Prague right now, and he wrote in German, even though he was Czech, right? So I chose Russian, and then I did it, and I started doing it, I kept doing it, I kept doing it. I went to graduate school, and I studied Russian literature and intellectual history, and a little bit of philosophy in graduate school. That was that. So it was really just because I was studying literature, and you had to pick a foreign language, and I just kind of randomly picked Russian because of small class sizes. It's you know compared to French or Spanish, you have 40 people per class. Russian, eight people per class. After you graduated, it says that you worked for Merrill Lynch. Mm-hmm. Like people say that, like humanitarian studies, like arts and uh, so on, it's uh, not practical. It's hard to find a work with such a diploma. It's better to study for IT specialist or engineer or MBA, like physician. Was it really hard to find a job after you graduated with a Slavic language speciality? My first day of work was the day after I graduated, so I got lucky. But after I, that's because I had a master's degree, and I didn't. Where I got my job was not entirely based on. You have a master's in Slavic languages and Russian, so we want to hire you. As much as I, w- I worked for a long time, my university's, um, for five years, at the writing center at my university, and I focused a lot on write- developing my skills in writing. So it wasn't so much, you know, people say that humanities can be bad for getting jobs, but that's because people who get humanities degrees a lot of times don't try to focus on developing certain skill sets. And I did my best in my school uh, when I was in university to develop I can get a job writing. So when I worked at Bank of America Merrill Lynch, which, you know, Merrill Lynch is international, but in America it's Bank of America, I got that job because I could write really well, like because I did security stuff and I wrote reports and briefs and stuff like that. And knowing Russian helped a little bit because Merrill Lynch has an office in Moscow, so I could report on things like that. But me knowing Russian isn't what got me the job. It's the Russian part. But now I do the Russian part <laughs> more than anything, yeah. It said that you were the first who found evidence that the uh, Malaysian Boeing was uh, shot down by the Russian missile. How did it happen? How did you start to look into it? In the 90-second version, instead of 90-minute version, is we figured because everyone said it was a book, right? And so what we did is we studied all the different convoys and of, of books that moved around around a month or so before the downing. So we figured that It came either from Ukraine or Russia, possibly Georgia or Finland, because they have books or Belarus, but probably not, right? It's probably Russia or Ukraine, right? So they studied all the movements and convoys of books towards Donetsk mm-hmm. about a month or so before. Ukrainians did not, had no, no movement. All their movement around Donetsk was in March 2014, th- four months before the downing. And then after then, around June and July, weeks before the downing, all the books were around Kramatorsk, around Kramatorsk, which is 150-150 kilometers away from the downing. So I had and there were no observed movements of and you look at satellite images and there weren't any observed movements of these books south towards Donetsk. So we thought there was a pretty small case that it could be them. But we said the Russian movements and of course there was a very large convoy um in the end of June that moved towards the Ukrainian border. And so we figured that one of the books in this convoy was very likely to be the one that was photographed and videotaped in Ukraine. So we looked at all, we took the, the, there were seven, now there are eight, as of two weeks ago, there are eight, but before there were seven photos and videos of the book in Ukraine, 
we gathered these all together and we looked at every individual observable characteristic on this book. All every tiny little, you know, dent, every little white mark, everything we could find. And the old, there's only one book. We studied dozens and dozens of these books, and there's only one that even had a quarter of the features that were on the UNO Ukraine. And this one had actually all the observable features, which was book 332 in Russia. And then this eighth video just came out, this eighth piece of evidence of the book in Ukraine, which was in Makayevka. Makayevka, I don't, I always pronounce it wrong. And on that, um, all the features that we saw on book 332 in Russia are more clearly than ever observable. All those features that we just barely could see in blurry, grainy photos now are very, very clear. We can see them very distinctly. So all these things we kind of made educated guesses on based on evidence that was a little bit hard and we stared at for months and months and months and months and months. Then this new video comes out and all those things that we predicted and not predicted, but like analyze and all that, they all turned out to be much more clear than we even imagined they would be in this new video. So it kind of validated all that work we did. Sorry, I said 90 seconds, but it ended up being about 190 seconds. Uh, how did it happen that you started to look into Ukrainian war? And... For me, it was totally an accident because um, I was, this is the time I was working at Bank of America, uh, Merrill Lynch at the time, and I mean, I was already scouring open source stuff everywhere. Twitter, that's what my job was, as a monitor for emergency situations to make sure everyone was safe. Employees and travelers were safe. So for example, like the Paris, Par the Paris terror attacks happened, and my job was to know about it before anyone else and account for safety of travelers and employees, make sure everyone's safe and everyone knows what's going on. Uh, sorry uh, for interrupting, but how did you get from uh, writing reports oh, to yeah, such I a job? I, I tried moving. Sorry, my, this is a long-winded answer. So mm -hmm. I was already familiar with this stuff, and so I was still working at this when the MH17 happened. And while that was happening, I was monitoring all the sources. And from there, I was kind of already following it for work. Mm -hmm. And I noticed some things, and the picture of Torres, which we worked on today mm -hmm. in the workshop, and um, Elliot, my, now my boss, but then a guy I just happened to follow on Twitter, posted mm -hmm. a picture of, and he says, this is supposedly a Snezhnoya, a picture of the book mm -hmm. in Torres, mm -hmm. and he said it was in Snezhnoya. And I spent a couple hours researching it, and I, I tweeted at him. that Back then I had a Twitter account with like seven followers or whatever. <laughs> and I tweeted at him saying, like, no, it's not in Snezhnoya, it's actually in Torres, and here's a dash cam video that shows the same scene. Da -da 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 -da. Mm -hmm. That was that, and I forgot about it for a while. I told him how I found it, I told him my process, and I forgot it for a while. And a couple, I know, a month or two later, Elliot was putting together a team of people who had investigated MH17. He knew I could read and write read in Russian, and I could investigate that, so he invited me onto his team with, along with six or seven, eight people. And then we wrote a report, and then we wrote another report, and then we wrote about 70 more reports on MH17, and now here I am um, talking about it with you. And how did it happen that inside Merrill Lynch uh, you moved from writing reports to kind of investigative job? Well, I, I just quit my job at Merrill Lynch <laughs> and did this. I mean, that you said that, if I understood you correctly, that while working at uh, Merrill Lynch, you looked for like safety of travel of the yeah, employees. Yeah. Well, it's all this, I always had the same job there. I guess the responsibilities evolved a little bit. So what I always did, well, I wrote reports, but I wrote reports based on um, events that were happening. So. Uh -huh. So my job, I was my job title was intelligence specialist. Mm -hmm. So we uh -huh. accounted for safety of the buildings, the mm -hmm. facilities, because we had like 50 buildings around the world, right? Mm -hmm. so like Philippines, Indonesia, Hong mm -hmm. Kong, all over. And we also accounted for employee and traveler safety. So when mm -hmm. there is an, a, an emergency event, you know, earthquake, typhoon, a terrorist attack, shooting, whatever, we were the first to know. Our job was the first to know and gather and verify information before anyone else, before our bosses found out more or less. <laughs> and so then when they came calling us, they we could tell them all already. This plane crashed, we checked corporate travel databases, mm -hmm. there was no one on the plane, we're safe, don't worry. Or 
there's a bomb that goes off in Bangkok, we can say, don't worry, we've already accounted for traveler safety. We've, mess- we've sent a message to all the travelers saying, this explosion's happened, it's three miles, three kilometers from your hotel. Um, it's two miles from the local office. You're fine, you're safe, just don't go there, right? So we accounted for traveler safety and also informed travelers and employees of security mm-hmm. incidents, right? So this is also, it's kind of similar to my current mm-hmm. work, because I, with that, I relied totally on open sources. I had to verify information, gather it, verify it, write reports. Very, by reports, I mean like very, very fast 15 minute reports, right? Wow. Not like mm-hmm. long, long, long. Yeah, yeah. When and how did it happen that you quit Merrill Lynch and you entered this uh, Bellingcat? Yeah. Uh, what was the moment? It was um, November of last yeah. year. It's when we, at Bellingcat, we got a grant from Google and they were able to hire two full time employees. One of them was obviously going to be Elliot, our founder, <laughs> and I was the second one. And a big reason for that is because I could do trainings um, in Russia, Ukraine with Russian speaking journalists because I speak Russian though not extremely nichista, <laughs> no, not perfectly uh, well and not very beautifully. I was familiar with you know, researching the Russian internet and all that stuff. And when I was working at Merrill Lynch, I got 15, this is weird to Europeans, like 15 vacation days a year, which in America is a lot. In Europe, it's like slavery, or it's not very many, it's not very many at all. And by February of the year, I had already used all my vacation days. I already traveled on my own free time using my vacation days to do workshops in Kiev and all over, right? Mm-hmm. And so I guess I wanted to do these workshops teaching verification research techniques and doing presentations on our work around the world, but I couldn't, I, you know, I only had 15 vacation days and I just couldn't go. And so that's the reason why I really wanted to uh, do this full-time because I can do this, travel around doing workshops, and I can also full-time work from home and do the research and verification for myself. So half my job is doing these workshops and doing presentations and kind of spreading the word, spreading mm-hmm. the gospel, right? <laughs> and teaching journalists stuff we do, so hopefully we and we infect them with the virus of verification and research, right? And they spread it when they get back to their own newsrooms. And the other half is just boring, you know, I edit things, I translate things from Russian. I can't translate English to Russian, but I can do Russian to English. I, you know, I oversee the Russian translators, I upload things, I work with them, I answer their questions, I write things, I post things, you know, just the boring day-to-day stuff as well. Because Elliot's so busy now with a million different things. He's going to meetings and stuff constantly. I'm doing a lot of the boring day-to-day work now. I do it love from home. Which of your investigations, because you have many, I've uh, been to your website, you have like lots of them now, yeah. which was the most uh, difficult? I, the MX-17 one is probably, I mean, that's, that's a cheap, cheap answer because, but it's... Okay, it's the second most. The second most, okay, yeah, yeah, second most. Um, probably, um, I did, this is one that was, for me personally, was difficult. I, almost all my research I do is based, based about Russian Ukraine, because I know Russian and I can read Ukrainian well enough, at least, <laughs> at least as well as anyone who knows Russian can read Ukrainian. Um, but I did this one research, because Sputnik published an article about how supposedly Russian robots, like combat robots, like Terminator, were in Syria, like, this killed like 30 fighters, like decimated mm-hmm. them, right? And I don't, like, I, I mean, I've read some reports about Syria, but I really didn't know how to investigate Arab language resources. I didn't know how to investigate like combat robots. I don't know anything about combat robots. Right? So that personally was hard for me because I had to um, learn a lot about what these robots are. So I talked to some people who knew about this stuff, who had written about them, and I um, had to figure out how to locate things in Syria. And I had to, I found all these videos and I had to figure out how to find the local, because I already do this in Russia all the time, but with Syria, it was totally new. Like how to find the local reports about things. and try to shed the Sputnik article about how these Russian robots just killed 30 people was totally made up because first of all, that's like 
impossible because like maybe in 20 years it'll happen, but now it can't. But also I looked at all the local reports and I found videos and photos of the incidents and all that stuff. So that was hard for me just because it was losing a lot of the skills I already do with Russia and Ukraine, but it was with a totally new environment and context. And so everything I did, I was doubting myself. So I had to triple check everything. I had to talk to all these local experts and all that stuff. With Russia, like I guess I just know it. I mean, I can ask. Ruslan or somebody, some Russian or Ukrainian say, hey, does this look right? And you're like, yeah, that's right. Or like, oh no, you, you know, this is actually so-and-so, right? And it's easy breezy. But with the Syria thing, it was very, everything was very new to me. What's the best for you in the, in working for Bellin Cat? What's your fuel? What drives you? Well, first of all, I get paid. <laughs> no, <laughs> but no. Yeah, yeah. My, real, my real answer, you know. Uh, is it better than Merrill Lynch? Yeah, oh yeah, way better. I, I, I mean, the payment. The, the, the pay is a tiny bit better. Uh, though I was very, very low level at Merrill Lynch. Yeah, I got like I was I was my first job out of college, mm-hmm. so like I wasn't making a lot. I was not like mm-hmm. a banker. I was making enough to pay for my apartment and I had health insurance, mm-hmm. right? I make a tiny bit more with Bellingcat, but I don't get health insurance, so it averages out to be actually in America health insurance is extremely expensive, so it actually averages out to be about the same. But my wife um, has a better job than I do, so we work very okay. <laughs> I get I take her health insurance. Um, my favorite part though, for real, because I did all this work, like I, I probably worked twenty plus hours a week when I was with Bank America Merrill Lynch, mm-hmm. I probably work 20-plus hours a week with Bellingcat, just volunteer for free, just because it's like my hobby, right? My wife always tells me that I don't really have any hobbies anymore, because my hobby used to be this, open source research, verification, mm-hmm. finding stuff, proving things, whatever. That was, it was fun, right? It's, it's like a fun thing to do, as anyone who does it, you know, most people do it, pretty much everyone who does it starts it as a hobby, because it's fun to do. It's like a puzzle you, you figure out. And then now I get paid to do this, now I my hobbies are like, I read... I watch basketball, I watch baseball, that's really, I don't really have too many hobbies because this used to be my hobby that I spent all my time on. So like, it's great because it's like my hobby that I would be spending all my time on if I had a different, oh, I'd be sneaking away like my boss wasn't looking doing all this in my free time, but now I get to do it all day. My real job, so it's, I don't know, it's, it's great to do, you know, all this research and it's like everything is like a big puzzle. You start off and you think this is hopeless, I can never find it, then you find some little shred of a witness account or a photo or video and you follow it up and then it's like a big ball of string. You find you pull one end to it and it all unravels, right? It's a really good feeling when you have this huge puzzle and you slowly piece it together and find out what the whole context or narrative of some event is. Do you feel yourself like a little bit like Sherlock Holmes during <laughs> Detective, uh, like mystery novels, and usually not because usually I'm looking through a thousand selfies and pictures of people eating food in restaurants, <laughs> and it's really boring. <laughs> so then I don't, or like I look on like for Russian soldiers, and half you know, 99% of the photos are just them shirtless posing, drinking with their friends. Right, it's really boring. <laughs> Every once in a while, a little bit, like with the image, I keep on going back to image 17 thing, but like with that, I, you kind of really do feel you know, some like detective superhero when you realize, you figure things out that no one else has figured out, right? So like this book, we identified the exact book missile launcher that shot down image 17. And I mean, it's like, like well, it's like something that's actually like historical or real deal. But then you always, in the back of your mind, you're thinking, like, well, if we didn't discover it, someone else would have, right? Or, sure, it took us a year and a half to identify the exact one, but maybe the CIA or whatever figured it out two weeks after it happened, right? Yeah. So there's always that lingering, you know, like that pretender, like you're not, you know, really doing the back of your mind. Because it's all this open source research verification thing is so new, right? Everything, we're making it up, like in a way, we're making it up as we go along because all these new things are happening and there's not like a... Uh, like an official field of like ethics and morals and all these things because everything just it's just happening it's just, every time someone writes a report it might be the first time it's ever been looked at right so it's everything is developing so fast 
So with that, it feels like we're kind of like pushing things forward, but also in the back of your mind, you think like, well, is this real journalism or like things we discovered, we think this huge revelation, like really did the, the CIA or, cause but we're not, by the way, we're not the CIA. We don't know. I've never met any of the CIA before. <laughs> I applied to the CIA when I left college and they didn't even give me an interview. So uh, we're, you know, maybe the Mossad or MI6 or CIA figured this out way before we do and they're laughing at us because it took us so long, right? You know, so kind of works both ways. You use crowdsourcing in your research. How does it work? Uh, you just go to some uh, social networks, some group, and ask people for help? Yeah, the great thing about this is that we're like, okay, some billing cats, like, a lot of times we're kind of like, we're the first or second or third thing that comes to mind. Some of this thing, it makes 17, you know, open source research, it makes 17, the first thing that comes to mind is us. Or maybe like cluster bombs research, maybe people think of Ruslan's conflict intelligence team, right? But the thing is, like, we don't just exist by ourselves, right? We, a lot of our research and a lot of the things we do are from this built-in community that's been working on Twitter and Kotaki and whatever on its own. So, for example, one of the ways we identified the book that shut down MH17 is by analyzing the damage on its... There's this hard rubber side skirt that's above the um, caterpillar tracks of the wheel. And at, over time, this side skirt sustains damage and it, like, it more or less stays semi-permanently until they replace it because it, like, they tear and whatever, right? We didn't... The idea to, to compare those across books and not... It was just some random guy on Twitter, some guy named Mark, I think, on Twitter, who just suggested it, right? And then we took it and we, of course, we gave him credit and then we ran with it and did all this stuff, right? So a lot of the research we do, a lot of the methods we use aren't ours, but they're from this crowdsourced community who assists us. And a lot of times the people eventually do write for us, right? They write an article or two for us and then move on with their lives or whatever. So yeah, I mean, good thing about this research, about this field of research is that so much of it is, I mean, like I was saying in my workshop today, it's like the utopian vision of this is that every bit of evidence we use and analyze is open to everyone else. And they have the exact same access materials as we do so therefore other people can contribute more than just us so we use it all the time we use checkdesk this really cool platform to crowdsource geolocation and stuff like that all check the time desk? checkdesk yeah checkdesk.org i think is what it is um it's a really cool product we use it all the time and we got it translated into russian too and it's in arabic russian and english do people uh, try to to give you some fake information do you receive some like fake leads Usually not. Like everyone, I always, every time I ever do any event or presentation or workshop ever, like everyone always, always asks, like, do you always, do people try to fool you? Do people give you fakes? How do you tell? Whatever. But really, fakes are usually so obvious because there are some people who put a lot of time and effort into fakes, but it's pretty rare that people actually put lots of time and efforts into fake mm -hmm. because people who create fakes are usually just idiots in the first place, right? And they probably won't spend tons of time working on it. So I, there's an example of, um, I think it was Anatoly Shari who created some fake profiles of soldiers and I think was informed Nepal. I think they fell for it and they like, I think they were like names of football players and they fell for it and they wrote a report on it, whatever. He put a lot of effort and time into it. But for the most part, the fakes are super obvious. Like the videos or, you know, like the verification methods we use are pretty, we always have at least one person who's assigned to be the devil's advocate who, who criticizes every tiny little thing. And so we know by, because we've been doing this for years now, what the most common ways to fake are and so on and so we can spot them pretty easily and so we have all these like because whenever we post anything ever on to a report we always have a million people saying it's fake 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 because this is this and so we kind of already know exactly what the questions are going to be about the weather isn't the same or so and so, so, and so. we know exactly what to look for now after two years of doing this <laughs> yeah. do you receive threats 
I haven't. Elliot, our head, he's had some RT reporters try to find him before. He went to his hometown and they harassed his mom. She cried. I don't know if she was, I don't know why she cried, but maybe she was just upset or nervous or whatever. I mean, like, we receive um, phishing, spear phishing things sometimes in our email, like, you know, trying to get our logins, but we're not idiots. You know, you'd be pretty stupid to fall for most of those things. I've never had any actual physical threats. You know, the idiots will try to say, you know, kick your ass or whatever, but like, it's not real. The cyber threats are a little bit more mm-hmm. common. They, they, we do get cyber things once in a while. But the threat for us is not nearly as bad as people who live in Russia to where the FSB can actually access your SMS and get your account information and give it to people who aren't very nice. But living in the US or Great Britain or all that, we don't have that risk. So for us, it's easier, but activists who live in Russia, it's much more dangerous and um, risky. <laughs> We're lucky. When I read your uh, website, I found out that you find information on some local, and not only local, uh, websites and web forums, uh, which I never was aware of. And uh, I found for myself a huge amount of websites with a huge amount of information I was not aware of at all. Database of photos of uh, somebody's cars, like expensive cars, yeah. and uh, all this stuff. How do you yourself find find it? Uh, the, all the data, you mean all the databases and stuff? Yeah, yeah, because all these databases you use in uh, your work, how, how do you find them in the first place? A lot of the time, it depends on exactly what we're looking for. So, for example, with image, again, I always keep running like this, but that's the thing we do the most work on. Image 17, we looked for, I've, we've asked locals who live in the area, so like, like if you were, a lot of times these people don't live there anymore because they've escaped because they're under occupied territory. We say that if you were there, what would you, where would you talk? Where would you say it? And they say this, 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 and this, and that's where we go. So a lot of times we ask locals what people actually do in the area. Um, and sometimes with other cases where we don't know anyone local, we'll ask local journalists, you know, Ukrainian journalists saying, you know, what are some databases you guys use in your professional services and all that. So for example, access to land, reg- like um, property deeds, tax records, things like that, because I don't know off the top of my head how to find all these in different countries, but I can ask the person who does. So with that, we do rely a lot on local contacts or journalists who are expertise already in the area, who are experts, experts in the area. Uh, how long does it take to find, for example, some specific watch among these premium brands, some like uh, specific island on a map, like yeah. in Pacific? So I think you're thinking of an example of, we did an investigation, 112 Ukraine about the corruption of this prosecutor who was illustrated. Mm-hmm. And so with the watch, I, we asked, there's a woman in our, in um, Bellingcat who knows about luxury goods. And we asked her, she says, oh, it looks like a so-and-so watch. And so we went mm-hmm. from there. I asked my wife and she knows a little bit more about watches. So she could kind of tell me, so, so we asked people who actually know. Uh, because a lot of times um, us guys, we don't know so much about luxury goods and all that, but a lot of times, <laughs> at least from these two examples, girls didn't know a little bit more about um, fashion and luxury goods than we do. And for the islands, the example you're thinking about the islands was there's a picture with um, of this again the wife of this um, corrupt official who mm-hmm. posted a picture of the Maldives of an island they were a resort in the Maldives, and I went on Google Earth and I searched through every single island and I was looking through specific features. It mm-hmm. took me about two or three days, and eventually me and also the like full days. Yeah, yeah. Well, not like I wasn't working eight hours a day, but like mm-hmm. I was working on and off. You know. Mm-hmm. And it's actually the journalist, when went to journalists, we were working together and he, he's the one who made the file, because I was going through in Google Maps and I was marking off every single island I was finding. I put like a little pin on everyone that I researched and crossed off and he eventually found, we eventually, I was working clockwise, he's working counterclockwise <laughs> and he's the one who got to it first, right? Yeah. So it's, uh, that was his process, as his brute force process mm-hmm. of elimination. 
but you know, of course, you ask people who know about the area; it can help a lot. There was, uh, like in the, in the last five or six years, there were a lot of scandals with leaks, uh, with classified information, WikiLeaks, Snowden, drone papers, Panama papers. Can OSINT help with investigation of such scandals to add something to this? Yeah, I think so, because a lot of times you can use that information to verify. So, for example, if there's some corrupt official that's revealed in the Panama Papers, you can then go and look on, for example, his son's Instagram account. And maybe the son is posting pictures of their vacations in Dubai or mm -hmm. Maldives, right? There's always limitations to open source information because you can only know as much as people put out a lot of times. Mm -hmm. But in many cases, you can use it to bolster a case. Like if the OCCRP is investigating corrupt officials in Azerbaijan or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. Well, we did some research with the Aliyev family in Azerbaijan. Of course, they were implicated in the Panama Papers. And if you look on the, you look closely in the Instagram and the Instagram accounts and the social media profiles, there are some secret ones and real ones, and the public ones and the secret ones. The real ones are the ones that have the juice and you know, the the dirt but the official ones are boring right so you find the secret accounts of like the daughters of Aliyev and you can see they're posing in London and all these clubs and they're going to Dubai and they're testing pictures and whatever mm -hmm. and then you can look at the assets that they're that they declare in the Panama Papers and you can see that they maybe some some house they declare that's not really that's like their grandmother's and then you see the son having a party at that same house in Dubai right because you know they use the grandmothers for tax reasons to avoid or whatever so the Aliyevs they don't care about taxes but you get the idea <laughs> Well, I read an article of Graham Phillips, Phillips complaining about you, oh, and, yes. but he makes our like biggest a, fan, our biggest fan. Yeah, yeah. But he has a point there that it is interesting for me too. He says that you don't have a donation button on your website. <laughs> no, we don't. Why, why, why is that, and how do you get fin your financing? Well, we had a donate button at the beginning. That's how mm -hmm. we started the website. Um, but we don't want to ask people constantly for money. Right now, we have funding. As of speaking, we have a bunch of funding applications out right now. But as of talking into your phone right but now, we only have we've only received money from Google. We don't have SBU money. We don't have CIA money. We don't have any government money. You always hear that, right? But as of right now, we don't have any government money, right? Um, Google has funded us entirely. And no, we so we don't have donate button because we don't want to ask people for money all the time because we already got about 50,000 pounds from the starting the site. And so 50,000 pounds at the beginning of the site, you don't want to ask for money for a while. <laughs> We've done one or two specialized fundraising campaigns for specific things. So we bought a satellite image. We mm -hmm. did a fundraising campaign to buy, buy a satellite image related to MH17. Two images, actually. We don't have a donate button because we've already gathered so much money from <laughs> from the public. And right now, at this point of Bellingcat, we're able to... We were right now funded by Google. Mm -hmm. They fund the, fight, the operation of the site plus two full-time employees. And right now, we have a bunch of funds out for specific projects to do uh, to stage workshops, um, do kind of the workshops to teach digital training and verification to journalists in Eastern Europe, and also do more projects like um, translation and stuff like that. So... Uh, how Bellingcat operates? How many employees do you have at the moment? Is there some hierarchy? Um, we only have two actual people who are paid, two employees, me and Elliot. Me and mm -hmm. For hierarchy, it's kind of yes and no. So we have a few dozen volunteers all over who write on and off, right? But we have about, about 15 or so people in the core team who because uh, we have a Slack, uh, I don't know if you know, you're familiar with Slack, but it's like a team group chat, mm -hmm. it's like Telegram, but um, more has more tools to it. We have about 15 to 20 people who are very active in our, our Bellingcat Telegram and they talk, or Slack and they talk a lot. 
there's not really a hierarchy as much as like there's people who are more active than others, right? So Elliot and I are very, very active because we're paid right, to be active. And for example, if we had a really big debate recently in our Slack and Elliot and I actually were in favor of something, uh, I want to say it is because we eventually we ruled against doing this thing or revealing this better information because a couple people in our group were not paid employee who are just volunteers and brought up some really good points about why we should do we should go a different direction on something and so even though Elliot and I are the paid people or whatever these volunteers end up winning out on this um, debate because they had they had better points or whatever right so I guess there's a hierarchy but like as far as the actual decisions of Bellingcat are concerned we're very collaborative we talk things through and if uh, some of the volunteers says that he needs some like to cover some operational costs to buy some mm-hmm. footage and so on how you paying them or there were no no such situation before Well, the way our things are, everything, we don't have any field work. We have absolutely no field work or travel or anything. Kind of like some satellite photos or something. Yeah, with satellite photos, we do we do, do that. We provide that. If we need something, we'll do work together in that or we'll... Because we, uh, we work with Google, and so we're able to ask Google sometimes for satellite images because they have satellite images and we can because they're funding us, so we can ask them, you're investing in us already, so do you want to help us out a little bit more and give us a satellite image, right? And they can provide that. Um, so we do do that, yes. Um, and as far as like actual money, like very rarely do we ever need it because so when we do events, we have people who travel to do events, but the organizers of the events will pay for everything. They'll pay for the travel and lodging and everything. So we don't have to pay for that. Every once in a while, like for example, we, with this um, ISIS, um, there's recently a story about how ISIS um, supporters were posting pictures in European cities that we geolocated them, right? Mm-hmm. One of our volunteers was a Dutch guy and he um, wanted to call the police, but he was in England, so he had to call internationally. It was expensive, mm-hmm. right? So we, uh, he had to make like, an international call that was like five dollars or five euros or something. We and we sent him the money for that because he's a poor student, right? He doesn't have money to do it. So we sent him like five euros on PayPal for that, right? But that's like a very rare mm-hmm. thing like that, right? So we, we'll never ask someone to pay for something out of their own pocket without paying them back, but it's very rarely will someone even need to because everything, again, is open source and we don't have field work or anything mm-hmm. like that. Like uh, most of, uh, like uh, as I could see, like most by far uh, investigations of the Belenkat are dedicated to Russia. I, I understand that uh, you probably, part of it is because you speak Russian. Mm-hmm. Does Elliot speak Russian? Or? No, Elliot does, he only speaks English, he's monolingual. This is, a, no, this is something I've been thinking and working on for quite a while because it's kind of a self-repeating cycle. So for example, We write about Russia and Ukraine because, like, I speak Russian Ukrainian, right? And so we write reports about Russia and Ukraine, right? We get success. We have coverage in the Russian and Ukrainian media. People read that. And so they come to us with their ideas and their projects, and they join our team as volunteers. And then we write more about Russia and Ukraine. It's like a cycle, right? Because the more coverage you get, the more volunteers we get, right? We really, really, really wish we had as much coverage in Turkey and Yemen and Saudi Arabia and India and places like that so we can get stories about Saudi Arabia bombing Yemen or about Turkey, about Turkey repressing its journalists and bombing Kurds in um, southern Turkey. Like we really want to cover those things, but no one in our group really has the expertise about that. Like, I know about Russian Ukraine, but I've been studying it forever, right? And we have a bunch of Russians and Ukrainians in our group. Not really Russians, but we have Russians who live in Ukraine. <laughs> And so we know those are things we know about. Those are for interest, and we write about them. We really, really wish we had more people who knew Turkish and knew the area, or who are from Yemen and know that, so they could write about that. So it's kind of a problem. It's well, it's a big problem. Is that we've had success in investigating about Russia, so then we get more people interested in Russia, and so we write more about Russia. But I really wish we had equal coverage of other conflicts 
But because we have only published a handful of reports about Turkey and Yemen, we don't have the same coverage in Turkey and Yemen. So we have fewer people out there who are interested in it, who see our work and contribute to us. So that's something we're, we're really trying to expand on that and try to expand our reach, but it's it's something that happens overnight. Uh, how do you try to do it? Like you are asking people if there are some people who can help? Yeah, yeah because the open source research community is fairly tight-knit because you have, especially with the wars in the Middle East, people are looking at the serious stuff may also look in the Yemen stuff. Because we do a lot, our two areas are Russia, Ukraine, and Syria. I say Russia and Ukraine could together because it's Russia invading Ukraine, right? <laughs> and also Syria. And sometimes some of the Syri- people who look at the Syrian conflict also look into the Yemen conflict, but not as much as they should because the Yemen conflict is new and there isn't as much open source information compared to Syria where people have been at war for five years and they know exactly how to get videos on YouTube and all that stuff, right? So we're trying to fix it by, because I'll ask people, like, do you know anyone working in Yemen or whatever? And it's like, well, no, not really, right? Or, yeah, but they don't speak English, and I don't know Arabic, so we only had, like, one or two people on our team who speak Arabic, so we're kind of at a, having a problem. But, yeah, I don't really know. There's no easy solution, because to do really good research, you have to really know the area, know the context, know the history, and all that stuff, and you can't just develop that overnight. So I hope that there's bigger community of people doing this in Turkey, Yemen, and other places, but it, it's gonna, it won't be overnight. It'll take, it'll take months and months, if not years. And the second place, uh, like the second biggest uh, number of investigation is probably, or maybe third is Mexico. Mexico, uh, why, yeah. yeah, yeah. Why is that? I can only think of two off the top of my head in Mexico. I think I probably I'm just exaggerating, but it seemed to me that there were oh, there at least five. five. There are yeah, four or five. five. Yeah, yeah. You're right, you're right. Okay. Mexico is an interesting case because I, on the top of my head, there's one about identifying the watches and jewelry of cartel drug lords, right? And one about... Well, it's because in Mexico there's conflict, right? The reason why there's mm-hmm. investigation about places is because there's conflict there. You don't write about places that are peaceful and boring. No, there are a lot of places where conflicts are like... Do, do you have somebody speaking Spanish? I think the people who wrote some of those reports spoke some Spanish, but mm-hmm. off the top of my head, I mean, I probably speak more Spanish than was anyone else. I don't. <laughs> I took two years of high school Spanish, and that's it, right? I can say, como esta, that's what I <laughs> I, There is, though, I, um, I spoke at a university a while ago, and... There's a student who came up to me who really wanted to investigate things in Central America. And I was like, yes, please, for the love of God, please do something. But he's, he's busy with schoolwork. He doesn't have time. And I really hope he can do some investigations on Central America. Because there's so much. You can do the migrant crisis. You can do all the different drug stuff going on and all the violence. And like in Colombia, you have like the FARC rebels and all that stuff mm-hmm. going on. So I really hope there's more. But again, there's not a community built in around this, right? Because like the reason why the Russian-Ukraine thing is there's so much analysis is the Russians and Ukrainians are so web savvy and there's so many young Ukrainian and Russian men who are so who are so tech savvy and know how to use the internet so well and they're so educated and all this stuff I'm not saying people who speak Spanish like in Central America are any less smart or whatever the Russian Ukrainians but there's not the same huge community of like very war obsessed because people in Russia and Ukraine they play war like World of Tanks right and they're like and they're obsessed with war and World War II and all these machinery and all this stuff right there's like a certain like cultural mindset and that makes it to where when you have war in Ukraine like everyone already knows all these T-72 tanks and T-64 they already know everything because they're it's built into the mindset but you don't have that same thing in other countries so that's why Ukraine and Russia was just like the meeting of so many different things that work so perfectly with doing open source research, but you don't have that same meeting of circumstances in places like Colombia, where there is just as much conflict, but no next to no investigation about it on open sources. 
So, uh, in your opinion, like in your view, Russia have some kind of militaristic culture, some culture of arms and so on. Can you elaborate a little? So, well, because it's be, like it's a, it's a point of view which will be like very strange to many Russians. Really? Okay, well, I mean, this is just for me as American viewing mm-hmm. from the very far outside. But like, yeah, so I, a Russian tend to see themselves as very peaceful people. Oh, really? <laughs> okay. Well, I'm just like thinking more about, um, okay, for example, like when I think about American kids, I mean, there are some American kids who are teenagers, I'm thinking kids, mostly young men, right, mm-hmm. who are really into like weapons and warfare, and they like to study history like World War II and all this, but like it's usually pretty far out of your mind. But like at least from my perspective, I see, again, tons and tons and tons of Russians play World of Tanks, right? It's a very, very popular game. And you can learn all about these different tanks and it's all about World War II, right? And World War II and the Russian mindset is so important, so central. Americans, when they think of World War II, they think Pearl Harbor, D-Day, Normandy, Hiroshima. That's it, right? We don't really think we're over to that much. But in Russian, it's such a central like, part of your identity, and it's not just the war, but of course, all the patriotic efforts, all the people who died, but actually the war itself, right? You have like, all these different equipments and the movements and the battle, you know, the Battle of Kursk and all this stuff, right? It's so important. That doesn't exist in the American mindset. And so I think that, and of course, in Russia, they, they really emphasize, uh, you have these huge military parades in Red Square, and, you know, in every Din um, you have these big military parades. That does not exist in America, or really any other European country. Right? Uh, it's a wrestling thing. What's that? It's a wrestling it's a, thing. Yeah, it's a Russian thing. And so, no, 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 recent, 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 okay, well, yeah, well, post-Putin, right? After Putin, right? Maybe, yeah. That was a Soviet thing, and then maybe it went down for a little bit. And now with Putin, it's going on again, right? Uh, what's funny is that it's uh, in Soviet Union, uh, they didn't have uh, a really? military parade on 9th May. They did have a military parade, but it was on uh, the October Socialist Revolution okay. anniversary, and on 9th May there was no parade. Okay, yeah, so they, they kind of transferred over some of the mm-hmm. tradition over there, because you can't do the Soviet holiday, but you can mm-hmm. say it's a World War II victory party, right? Yeah. Well, still, but still, you might, and of course, at all the, um, you know, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, you have the tanks and stuff and all the World War II memorials, and it's just, I don't know, just see from an outsider's perspective, it seems like there's much more of an emphasis on, on war. And, of course, that then translates into young men, a few women, but, to, but honestly, it's almost all men who are interested in identifying tanks and stuff like that. And there's much more of a... And plus, I mean, Ukraine, there's war in Ukraine, right? So, of course, those people, I'm sure there's a lot of people in America who are obsessed with that, too, but they don't really have a place to practice their knowledge. But with the war in Ukraine and against the war in Georgia before that, they could practice their knowledge and show it off with identifying all the tanks and everything. Actually, in the U.S., they can practice their knowledge in, like, I don't know, war in Afghanistan. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, but you don't see that very often, right? Because it's just a far away, distant, it's like a vacation almost. It's so far away. No one, no one recognizes Iraq and Afghanistan. Yeah. We were fighting Canada. <laughs> yes, we would. But thank God we're not going to fight Canada anytime soon. <laughs> You studied uh, Russian literature. You wrote your uh, work about Tolstoy novel like Anna Karenina. <laughs> okay, I forgot about that. Yeah, and, and uh, you, uh, I think you uh, entered university in 2007 or something like that. Six. Six. Yeah, but like two years after you uh, entered university, uh, war in Georgia started. Then this war in Ukraine, then this Boeing, mm-hmm. and so on. So, how did you feel this transfer from Russia of uh, 
Tolstoy and Dostoevsky to, to, to Russia of Putin? Did you lose some illusions? That's a good question. No, <laughs> that's or, a good question. Or you was like by, uh, I don't know, by, by reading War and Peace, you was prepared yeah. to that? Maybe, that's a good question. I haven't thought about that. <laughs> okay, so, okay, for the Georgia, War in Georgia, I... I mean, I barely even knew Georgia was a country until I studied Russian, until I knew it was more than just a state in the U.S. So, uh, but I remember I was very, I mean, when I studied Russian in college, like I started, I think I started studying in 2008, 2009, I was very, I didn't really know that much about Russian politics, I didn't care. I mean, I knew Putin was like, in America, when people think about Russia, like Russian, when they watch TV, they think America is obsessed with Russia. They think that America is obsessed with Russia and they're scared of their military mind. They're scared of Putin, whatever. And Russians will be happy to hear it. Well, I'm sorry, but that's totally not true. Because the average American thinks of Russia, they never, the average American never thinks about Russia. And when they do, it's like maybe there's a slideshow of funny pictures of Putin without a shirt on or like, or dash cam videos, right? Most Americans get their exposure to Russia with dash cam videos, right? There's a bear that runs through a town, right? There's a meteorite in Kilominsk, right? Or there's Putin without a shirt on, right? That's to 90% of Americans. Russia is the place with the shirtless Putin and funny bears and whatever. Like, no one thinks about the Russian military. If you ask any American what the biggest threat to America is, 90% would say, or maybe a very small number, only Russians and Russia would say, only Russians in America would say Russia. Everyone else would say China or Iran. Even though Iran is not a threat at all, but people think it is. Yeah. So they would say China, Iran. No one's scared of Russia. It's like a like Russia is like a punchline in America. So, anyways, I never thought about Russian politics that much until I studied. Until I got out of until like maybe 2012 and 2013 with Bolotnaya when things started turn turned to turn then. And then I paid a little bit of attention to it, but like it was like a curiosity. Like I, you know, I, I studied in Petersburg in 2011, but in 2011 everything was, I mean, it was during mid it was pre mid Vietnam, right? It was fine. Me being an American was like kind of interesting to people, like, oh, you're an American, oh, that's nice, whatever. But then I studied in Kazan in 2012 or 2013, it was with the Pussy Riot thing. It happened right before then. I think it was 2013, right? And then me being an American turned into like a, like oh that's interesting to uh, oh you you adopt our kids and you turn them gay kind of a thing right yeah and they like I heard that you guys adopt Russian kids and you do and you like neglect them and kill them right because that's when Putin came back and things started to turn in the other direction and then me being an American went from like a curiosity neat thing to like not the enemy but like getting close right cool. Yeah, after Pussy Ride, things started to really turn. And so then, then I started paying more attention because it, like, I noticed this change, and I was like, what, what in the world's going on? <laughs> going on? So yeah, I studied, you know, literature, and I studied mostly, like, modern, like, you know, like, Bluk and uh, Mayakovsky and you know, Bukakov and all that stuff, which had, I mean, it, like, some of it was very political, but it's, like, a weird, like, you know, the Soviet of the 20s, like, you know, it's, it has nothing to do with today, but maybe it actually does more and more every day, it seems like. Uh, this Russian soul, like Russian character, which is described in Russian literature, how does it correlate with uh, the real Russian soul and Russian character you, you met? <laughs> the first kind of shot, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's totally unrelated, I feel like. I feel like the only Russian writer that really is important today is Pelevin and Sorokin, really. <laughs> Pelevin and Sorokin are perfectly applicable today. Pelevin especially, right? You're in Generation Pei and you understand Putin, right? Russia pre-Putin, pre-Putin is Pelevin's Russia. So, I, I mean, I read, you know, all these all these authors still still in Dostoevsky and Chekhov and Nabokov and all those. But then you read Pelevin and you're like, oh, this is the only one that actually has any correlation to modern Russia, right? 
So, I mean, yeah, you read Chibai and Bustata or mm-hmm. uh, Generation Pei, that's the only one that really... And maybe, I guess, you know, like Tatiana Tostaya and Ulitskaya. And so, I mean, obviously, they are very important and all that, but I'm talking about the... So, sorry, well, what, what's the name? Ulitskaya. Ulitskaya. Sorry, sorry, I kind of jumbled it right there. Yeah, yeah, Dumi Ulitskaya. I mean, they're obviously, you know, she's getting green paint thrown in her face and everything nowadays. But yeah, I mean, Pilevin is really the only one I feel like is important anymore, and Sorokin, obviously. Uh, when was the last time that you were in Russia, and uh, what was the impression it left? Last time I was in Russia was in Kazan. I studied there for two months. I, I studied at... Um, so it actually was this time after Pussy Riot? I think 2012. 2012 mm-hmm. The summer 2012. Yeah, I think it was 2012 in the summer. Yeah, and I, I lived in Kazan. I love Kazan. It was great. I met so many great people, and it was great. My teachers are great. I met having tons of friends, Russian friends, everything. And then after Cream Nash, they all like turned. Like it's like something like there's like a, a switch. Like just they went from normal people who didn't care about politics to to accusing me of awful things because I'm an American ghost dep and you know this that and the other thing, right? So it's like it's weird because Cream Nash just like changed people, you know? It just it's, it's really sad because I met a lot of people I really liked and everything, and then and then they just like everything is thrown out the window as soon as you know after 2014 but when i was there it was great i mean like i said earlier things were a little bit different than in petersburg but for the most part i mean you know it's kazan it's you know everyone's laid back it's good you know it's it's really great food great people you know it's great but but i'm glad i was there in 2012 and not 2014. i'm not gonna go back anytime soon many economists and uh, politologists including for example this nobel prize winner uh, douglas north told about Russian, uh, and not only Russian, but including Russian path dependence, that the country is moving on the path that it uh, got into some like hundreds years ago and cannot get out of this track. What do you think about it? Is there, uh, in your view, is there a chance that Russia in any like conceivable future, like uh, in our lifetime, or like in next 10 or 15 years become like free democratic country <laughs> probably i mean read chadayev if you really want to understand right because like you know you're talking about like back in the 19th century you have philosophers slash writers right like chadayev and Herzen and all them gertsen i guess in russian right talking about how russia will never truly be you know i'm pessimistic more than anything i think it's possible i mean i really hope that things go back to the trajectory they were on in 2008, 9, 10, before Thoreau, Putin, right? Because mm-hmm. the things in 2008, 9, 10, Ruslan, you can think, things like they were getting a little bit better before Bolotnaya. Yes. It seemed like it. But then Putin, he came back, and then everything now is back to, you know, being awful. I think it's possible, but I think, I mean, everyone says after Putin, you know, после Putina, right? Everything is after Putin, but I think after he leaves, it'll be someone like Ivanov or whatever, Shoigu, whatever, is just the same. The systems in place. I mean, I, I would like to be very optimistic, but I mean, if you look back at the last 400 years, there's not a lot of reason. I mean, for every, you know, you know, Alexander Thoreau, you know, afraid to serve, but then, you know, after then you have Nicholas II who ruined everything. So, or even Alexander III. So like even, I don't know, for every glimmer of hope, there's some awful thing. So I don't know. I, I really hope that some great, you know, even, even like Medvedev, who wasn't the best, but like he was fine before Putin took the mm-hmm. war. I mean, that would be great, you know? Something like that, that just made, that where you stopped invading countries and you at least tried to keep corruption to at least a moderate level, right? But now it's just, 
you know you're invading a country every every six months and it's like it's like you're america back in 2000, 2003 right uh, actually it was medvedev who first oh, georgia, invaded right? I, forgot about, yeah, I forgot about 2008 yeah he did invade georgia but i, I always assume that was putin's Putin's order <laughs> to, to fit my narrative, <laughs> but no. But I mean, like domestically, we're a little bit better. I mean, mm-hmm. overseas, I guess, except for George 2008, it was never going to be perfect. But America isn't much better with its foreign policy, so I can't criticize too much. At least domestic policy was a little bit better in my view. But uh, I hope it gets better. I, I don't want Russia to be. I'm not like a real Russophobe. I want Russia to be as and the worst Donald Trump. I want it to be great again, but I don't know <laughs> if it'll happen. Here for the uh, Ukrainian war, you investigate in it, and uh, so I uh, presume that you are following the uh, political situation in Ukraine as well, probably. A little bit. Not so, super closely, but yeah, yeah. So many people like in Ukraine tell now that the Maidan ideals uh, fall down and that reforms do not go anywhere and the new government does like almost... Uh, almost the same thing as the previous one, and it's deep in corruption and so on. What do you think about it? I mean, I'm not a Ukrainian political expert, so everything I'm saying is based off of what my Ukrainian friends tell me for the most part, and what I kind of see for myself. But for the most part, it, it seems like almost like with Yushchenko, right? After he came in power, everyone had great hopes that the Orange Revolution, whatever, and then it turned out to be just as awful as before, right? It, it kind of went down, and no one, and he did his like weird ethnographic projects and everything just kind of, you know, sunk back to how it was. Yanukovych came in, and everything's corrupt, and now Poroshenko and everything had all the high hopes, just like after the Orange Revolution, and then a year or two later, you know, he's in the Panama Papers, their corruption is just as high as it was, people are making the same amount or worse money than before, the prices are just as high. I mean, for the average Ukrainian and Tricasi or whatever, right? The life is the same now as it was before, except slightly worse, and maybe your son is now in the army, right? So, I mean, you can take the big, huge geopolitical view of saying things are a little bit better now than before, but, I mean, for the average Ukrainian, which for 90% of Ukrainians who don't live in the, you know, for the most Ukrainians who don't live in the Donbass or whatever, life is pretty much the same as it was before, except maybe slightly worse because maybe you have a relative who's been killed in the war or food is a tiny bit more expensive than it was before. So, I mean, again, when it comes to Russian and Ukrainian politics, I'm a pessimist. So, like, if you were a Ukrainian, mm-hmm. would you think it worst it, this Maidan, the second Maidan? Mm-hmm. Yeah, probably, just because they, I feel like there was, I mean, there was such hope, obviously, right, after this Maidan. I don't know, it's hard, I mean, it's, I don't want to put myself in this totally, because I, I don't understand all the context and politics and everything with Ukraine, but, like, it feels kind of like with, um, I mean, like when Obama was elected in 2008, everyone had these great hopes, everything would be totally better, whatever, and then he just turned out to be a total moderate, right? Total moderate centrist, didn't really, I mean, it was better than Bush for sure, but like, it wasn't any different than like Bill Clinton, he was a total centrist, and he kept, his foreign policy was hardly any different, and it's almost worse when you get your hopes up, right, and then they're kind of crushed and things go back to how they were before. But at least it's a different face, I guess. <laughs> the same thing. At least the the Poroshenko is better at PR, I guess, a little bit than Yanukovych was. But that doesn't really matter. When it comes to the average Ukrainian, what they pay for when they go to the grocery store and how much their money, that really matters. On your website, there is uh, an article about this uh, American airstrike on this Kunduz hospital. And uh, American government confirms this uh, military strike. And Russians, they deny their military strikes in the hospitals in Syria. How do you think why? Why, why they cannot accept it? 
well, it's just be, I don't know. It's just the decisions of the people on top. So, like in the U.S., like we do awful, horrible things right? all the time. We have drone strikes. We like have we bomb weddings. We torture people at Guantanamo. Like we do a lot of all really awful things. But for the most part, not always, but for the most part, we admit them. But we just don't do anything about it, right? It's almost worse with Americans because we admit that there's a problem, but we don't do anything about it. But compared to the Russians, who won't admit that there's a problem in the first place, and they obviously don't do anything about it, right? So. But why do Russians do it? Well, because, well, with the Russian, they have different mindset. It's kind of like almost like the Soviet mindset of if you just ignore it, people won't know about it, right? So if you just control, you know, they obviously control state media, but people on the internet, and then they just pump out the message that anything on the internet is fake that contradicts the, the line. And if it isn't fake, then oh well, at least we're not as bad as the Americans, right? I mean, that's obviously bad, and I hope that, I wish that they would recognize their mistakes and all that stuff, but, I mean, you can get to the bigger philosophical question of what's worse, you know, the Americans who admit they're making mistakes and keep doing them, or the Russians who don't admit their mistakes and keep doing them, right? So, we know that these things happen, like, we knew that Kunduz happens, and now that they release a report that they aren't going to fire or put anyone in jail, is that worse than the Russians who won't admit that it happened in the first place? So, I don't know. Now, when uh, Ben and Kat is famous, and uh, made so like several very high profile investigations do some government organizations uh, probably wouldn't answer if I ask you about a secret service about say even if they approached you you wouldn't probably tell me but like I don't know Dutch uh, prosecution office or something like that do people from governments of different countries go to you for information Yes and no. Okay, so we've never been reproached by like an actual real intelligence agency ever. Like secret, like cross my heart, hope to die. We've never, <laughs> we've never been approached by the CIA or MI6 or anything like that, right? Because they they have their own methods. They they have their own way of getting information. We have once or twice with like the FBI because we did an investigation into American volunteers who were fighting with the Peshmerga against ISIS. And they were um, preemptively monitoring these people in case they were taken hostage, right? So they needed to be ready in case they were taken hostage so they can get them free. And one of our volunteers um, talked with um, the FBI about that. So it kind of like, how did this investigation so they can like learn from us and do their own work kind of similar to us, right? So that was kind of neat. And also they like they asked for help like a few times, like, can you confirm this video was filmed in this location? You know, because very technical things, right? But it's usually like it's not like super high classified intelligence work, it's more rudimentary. Can you confirm this video is located in this location? Right. Kind of boring, right? And we've talked with the Dutch investigation, not the forensic investigation that looked at like the airplane stuff, but we've worked kind of well by work with I mean we've sent information to the um, joint investigation in the criminal investigation of JMH-17. And we know that they really, we, we can kind of tell, because they aren't allowed to tell us anything, but we can tell by what we send them how how surprised they are, because we've met, because Elliot, our founder, has met them, has met them twice in person, and another of our members has met them once or twice too, and so he always, they always tell us like, you know, we're telling so-and-so, and they're just like boring, whatever. And then you say something about a very particular topic, and all of a sudden they're at the edge of their seats and they want to know more, right? So, <laughs> so we can judge what they know and what they don't know, kind of based on that. So we, we've submitted information, and we know that it has helped in some ways. Mm -hmm. 
but we've never helped a real like secret intelligence service or whatever just because either they don't want our help they don't need our help or they just don't want to ask for it because you know, they're the cia you know i don't want a bunch of amateurs telling us what to do right kind of thing there are investigations of yours I've read about on your website. They always uh, start with some video, some photo, like some footage. And can OSINT methods uh, be helpful without it? Like, uh, for example, if there are if rumors circulating that, uh, for example, Russia is going to invade Latvia in two weeks. <laughs> and there is, of course, no footage, nothing. Yeah, yeah. Can uh, OSINT methods uh, be used to check if it's just rumors or there is something about it? Yeah, uh, what we do, we've, we've thought about this almost exact situation before, because we think about if there is going to be an invasion of Latvia or Lithuania or Estonia or whatever, who would be the first to go? Right? It would probably be the paratroopers, Vidivi, right? Who would go because they're the people in Ukraine were the first to go in the fight, right? So you have the armored divisions and the paratroopers. They're the, always the, the first to go in the Spetsnaz, right? But the Spetsnaz people are smart. They don't share anything. But the VDV, they're idiots. They like to share everything, right? They're like the meatheads who share everything. So we already know exactly what VDV divisions would, if there were an invasion of Latvia, would be going to Latvia. So we would jump onto their profiles. For example, there's the I can't remember, 136, I can't remember, division in Pskov. Mm -hmm. They're the ones who went to Ukraine, and we would think they would probably, be the, they're pretty close to the Latvian border, we would think they would be the ones to go. So we would start monitoring the uh, profiles and stuff of soldiers in Vedeve, the paratroopers or armored divisions that would most likely be deployed to Latvia and see if any of them have suddenly started traveling west towards the border, right? So I think it could be useful um, in concordance with other stuff. You can like do that to lead you into the most logical actors, right, to this scenario. Or, for example, the Syria scenario, right, with how you had Syrian soldiers who, who uh, not invaded, right, they were invited to Syria, but they, they went to fight in Syria, and they all left from Crimea. And so you go to the pictures of the ports in Crimea, and you can see some boats that are leaving, and then track naval records and stuff like that. And the last question, do you have some vision of desired direction of how Berenkat should mm -hmm. go, should uh, develop. What do you want to see Berenkat in like 10 years, 20 years? Boy. Well, 10, 20 years, I can't answer that. I can tell you maybe in one or two years. <laughs> in one or two years, I would hope that we cover um, a lot of different areas. We don't just focus on Russia, Ukraine, Syria, whatever. We, we focus on all sorts of conflicts going on around. Because it's not like we like have this agenda how we don't want to cover certain things. It's that we just don't have the volunteers or expertise to do it. So we want to cover Saudi war crimes in Yemen. We want to cover how Turkey is being is bombing its own citizens towards the Kurdish areas. We want to cover this. We just don't have any volunteers or experts who can do it. So I'd like for us to really be able to expand in those areas. And going forward after that, we really want to focus on doing trainings for traditional journalists and teach them how to do um, open source research and verification so they can take the techniques that we do of research and verification and eventually make us obsolete because they're doing it all themselves. Um, that'll never happen, so I can I can say that. We like to do more trainings and workshops with journalists so they can they can do the stuff that we do so it's not just volunteers doing it, it's professional journalists doing it. Now I have two more questions. Okay, <laughs> yeah, 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 okay. First one is uh, that if uh, United States are involved in something again like in Iraq, uh, mm -hmm. Afghanistan or something, will you explore it? Will you, will you investigate it? And if yes, are you ready for the 
fate of uh, someone who is hunted on like Snowden. <laughs> um, not not ready because no nobody nobody can can be ready. But can you envision yourself in such a situation, for example? And the second one is: Do you want to like? It's not plans. It's just like visions. Um, do you want in like ten or twenty years, Belenkert uh, to be a huge uh, intelligent corporation, uh, private corporation, or you want it to be more like a volunteer organization living from donations? So, as far as the U.S. Snowden thing, like if we, yeah, if U.S. went to war tomorrow, like we already cover U.S. bombings of Syria and, mm-hmm. and Kunduz and Afghanistan, we have that stuff on there. And I mean, like, I'm pretty sure that I would never become a Snowden type figure, just because we have, um, unlike Russia, we have a lot stronger justice system in place. So, like, we don't have. You're not going to be charged for treason for revealing positions, you know, like activities of soldiers, right? So if that actually came to be to where I would be like an outlaw because I like revealed that we bombed some civilians in Iran and Kate, like if Donald Trump is president and we bombed Iran, is actually has a real chance of happening. No, it would be like the patriotic thing to do to reveal what was happening, right? And so, but thankfully, unless it's President Trump in which he actually turns our turns our country into like a fascist. I mean, like, yeah, sure, I guess I'll do it, but like, I'm I have a sense of faith in our country that it won't happen. In which case, I guess I'll be a martyr for a few years until we get until Hillary becomes pre- or Elizabeth Warren becomes president in 2020, right? And not like Russia, people who actually are taking real risks in Russia, to where there's no. You know, Supreme Court or something that could actually override some injustice. So for me, there's not nearly as much bravery as someone who's actually in Russia doing. Yeah, this. I know. Case. I know, but like with Trump, uh, many people are thinking about such a situation well, now. Well, my mom was born in Canada, um, so I could probably get if I wanted. I could probably get Canadian citizenship. I could probably get Canadian citizenship, so I'm probably okay. Like Justin Trudeau will protect me, right? And as far as I prefer, we more volunteer based because, like, I guess the alternative is like Stratford, right? It's like a, it's like yeah. a private intelligence yeah. company, but I'm not a huge fan of Stratford, so I hope we don't become that. <laughs> I mean, yeah, they're paid really well, but like, we use Stratford a lot when I worked at um, the bank and. I didn't think too highly of their services because they were very much more bureaucratic and not so great. And everything they reported on, Ruslan, CIT, or we reported on three or four days before usually. Um, so I hope we don't become that because it's very bureaucratic and unwieldy. Whatever. I hope we become. I hope we stay to a degree of we still are very flexible and agile. I mean, I'm using weird kicks like you know. Up, like um, startup words, but like I hope that we still stay very flexible and agile. We can actually move very quickly in our research investigation, and I hope we don't become too big and bureaucratic and awful. And like Stratford is now. No offense if any Stratford people are reading. I'm sorry, um, but yeah. <laughs> Thanks a lot.